mind was striking me with power where she was singing, you are here setting prisoners free. We worship you. You are here rearranging destinies. We worship you. And I felt the Lord speaking to my heart that there would be people in this room tonight whose destinies would be rearranged just because of the attitude of heart that they have. God is great enough. He is powerful enough. He is good enough. He is loving enough. And he is here enough to change us in that manner. But it really falls to us. It depends on us whether we're going to receive of that grace that he has. God help us to. You know, I think of, of, of the story of Cain and Abel and how there was something in Cain's mindset. He would rather look at somebody else who was receiving the blessings and the answer and the nearness of God, and he would rather blame that person and hate that person than come to that brokenness himself that really was available to him. Now, I don't know if he was sitting in his hut thinking, well, you know, it took me this many months to grow these vegetables, and I just don't know how I'm going to improve on what I did last time. I don't know if he was postponing God's word and his response to weeks and days in the future. But the Bible tells us that a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these you will not despise. He right then in, the, in his hut, he could have got down on his knees and said, Oh God, I don't have any more vegetables to offer you. And I don't own the lambs that Abel has given. But I can give you a broken spirit and a contrite heart right here and right now. And I know the presence of God would have begun to shake that hut and satisfy the need of his soul. And he would have known that his sacrifice was acceptable. But there's something comfortable for the flesh to postpone into the future the things that God is prompting and asking of us right here and right now. Amen. When he says today, if you hear his voice, would you just respond? Would you give the acceptable sacrifice? He doesn't want your grain. He doesn't want your vegetables. He doesn't even really want your lamb. He wants your heart. Amen. And what is it that prevents us from offering that acceptable sacrifice. It's an intact heart. It's a held together, well uh, satisfied spirit and an unbroken heart. It's, it's no contrition. That's what, that's what prevents it. When we're still self-sufficient, when we're still whole in ourselves, then we don't seek the healing and the grace that God gives to the brokenhearted. Amen. And we call that, that condition, we call it pride. Thank you, Jesus. It may masquerade itself in so many ways and change its colors so many times and change its tone of voice and its requests, but there is a certain kind of person who wants the answer from God, who wants the miracle, who wants salvation while maintaining an intact self. And there is another kind of person who wants all of the above having broken, having come to the end of self 
and having gotten to the place where God gives grace to the humble. And that pride is what God resists. And we know that Cain was resisted. So something about his problem was rooted in pride. It was rooted in a certain kind of complacency and self-sufficiency that just did not evoke the, the grace of the Most High. And that's what we're afraid of losing. Somebody asked me a, a very salient question this week, and I didn't give a, an answer, but I've been thinking about it. Wow. Amen. <laughs> We've been getting the rain. I've been thinking about the question, and the question was, where do you feel, if I remember it correctly, the question was, where do you feel that insecurity comes from? How many of you remember what I ministered? It must have been uh, not last week nor the week before that, but maybe three weeks ago. How many of you remember one of the things I talked about, the fear of failure? The fear of failure is the number one reason that people don't prosper, that people don't change their lives, that people don't succeed in great efforts or exploits. The fear of failure, and that's what insecurity is, uh, at least the kind that I'm going to talk about tonight. Thank you, Jesus. We know what security is, is feeling secure. <laughs> it's feeling sure about ourselves. It's feeling safe. It's feeling protected. It's feeling confident. Amen? And insecurity is a feeling of unsettledness. So I want to ask you, first of all, does God want us to be insecure? Without Him, yes. Brother Dan said, without Him, yes. So somebody who feels secure apart from God, what's going on in that situation? I should rephrase that. Someone who feels insecure without our God in heaven, hallowed be His name, what's going on in that situation? They have gods. They have idols. They have found a refuge, but it is not the secret place of the Most High. They have put their trust in chariots. They have put their trust in gold. They have put their trust in their own gifts, their intelligence, the strength of a man's leg, the power of a horse's neck. They have put their trust somewhere. Because all of us, if we don't put our trust somewhere, if we don't find something to augment this self, we live in a feeling of uncertainty. We know that we are, we are but a leaf in a forest and a forest in a hurricane. We don't have anything to cling to. We don't have any wall to hide behind. We are vulnerable. We are insufficient. We sense that there are powers, whether near or far, great or small, there are forces in the world that could undo us. And we're all in search of a God. We're all in search of a refuge, someone or some place where our soul can be quieted down and we can find that security that we know Adam and Eve must have had with the Lord in the garden before they sinned. So I think insecurity 
is a great prerequisite for salvation, to salvation. I believe insecurity is reality. It's telling you that in and of yourself, you're not sufficient. That you would like to think of yourself as an island, but you're really not. The dangerous thing is that as we begin to sense our vulnerability, insecurity in and of itself begins to isolate us more and more from those around us. And we know that this is not God's will. This is the fear of death through which the enemy holds all people in bondage all their lifetime. So if we don't watch it, insecurity can become biting the hand that would feed you. Resisting and saying no to the love that would heal you. The grace that would help you and forgive you. So insecurity will persist in the life of a person who wants to be sufficient in themselves. They want to be accepted. They want to be liked. They want to be appreciated. They want to be sufficient in themselves. Insecurity will abate in the life of a man who finds idols or a man who finds God. The man who finds idols will live for a season with a growing sense of security. What did David say? When I looked at the wicked, I did what? I envied them. They have an enviable, enviable life because their gods are readily at hand, right? Gods of wood and stone and gods of, of images, idols. He says, when I looked at the wicked, I, went, I envied them. Why did he envy them? They've got it made. He says their kids are fat. Must have been America. He says they never have troubles. They're wealthy. When I looked at the wicked, I envied them. But we get an insight into why, into the gods that the wicked are secure with. They're secure when they're healthy, when their family, when everything goes just right. They're secure when they're making money. They got plenty all around them. They're secure when their houses are strong. But who is going to take that security, those kind of securities with them? Who is going to take their beautiful house into their dying breath? Who is going to take their healthy family with them across that Jordan of death's final hour? Who is going to take that with them? Who's even going to survive into old age without suffering the devastating loss of these things that make the wicked feel secure? It's not going to happen. And so the wise say, the God I serve is not as easy, easy for me to get my hands around. He's not made of gold. I can't mash on him and change his shape and make him smile at me when I want. He's not made of clay. I can't mold and shape him. He's far above me. His ways are not my ways, and his thoughts are not my thoughts. He's as far from my methodology as the heavens are from the earth. But from way off in the distance, by the power of his spirit, he tugs on me. 
It creeps up on me in ways I don't expect. It surprises me. Sometimes it's in nature. Sometimes it's in a conversation. There's this warming of the heart, this wooing of the soul. Eternity is written in the hearts of men, and I feel this God asking me, do you want to trust me? Do you want to walk with me? Do you want to come unto me all the ends of the earth? For I am God and there is no other. Do you want to run into my name, into my identity, and find that it is a strong tower? And we say, well, the wicked's path to security is fast but fading. The righteous path to security is slow but eternal. I think I'll take a step toward trust in the Almighty. God doesn't want a Christian to be insecure because he wants them to be they want, he wants to be their security. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll take that insecurity out of your heart. I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Bible over and over tells us that the Lord is a place of refuge, that the Lord is a place of security, that the Lord is a place of peace and comfort. But trying to live without the idols of this world or the comfort of God's presence and the, the security of his name and the mighty fortress of our God, that is an insecure life. We are insecure because we ought to be insecure. We are insecure because God put just enough intelligence in us to teach us intuitively that we are never going to survive as an independent, autonomous agent in and of himself. We are insecure because God wants us to come to him. So he says, blessed are the insecure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who don't have it all together, who don't have life in a package that's under their arm, for they might just find something real and eternal, something lasting, something powerful. But the worst kind of insecurity is a hybrid kind. If someone were truly and authentically and wholly insecure, they would receive Jesus that very night and their life would be changed. But the most dangerous and troublesome kind of insecurity is a hybrid kind of insecurity. It's a hybrid. It's a mixture. They know that they, they, they have enough intuition, they have enough knowledge, enough smarts about them to know that they're not prepared for all that life is going to bring their way. They, they sense that they need love, that they need help, that they need something bigger and stronger than themselves. And yet, and yet, there is this resilient, fast-recovering pride that is always reassuring them and telling them that if you'll just, if you'll just be smarter, if you'll just uh, be more confident, if you'll just be more careful and not let people see 
the insecurity, well, then you can skate by because your, real only, your only real vulnerability is in them knowing that you have a need. But if you can cover that up, keep a stiff upper lip, and just pretend that you are autonomous, then we can at least imagine that it's so. And so pride plays havoc, and it's like in one moment you're terribly insecure, and in another moment somebody says, can I help you? Oh, no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> I've got this together. Please, somebody give me food, and you say, would you like something to eat? No. What am I? Do I need charity from you? <laughs> so it's this pride. It's this constant, it's a hybrid insecurity. This is what I think most people live in. person who's on their deathbed, who's lost all their strength to a disease, who has no confidence in things that cannot heal them, who has seen their youth flicker, their beauty vanish, all the things that they reach to for manipulation and control, their intelligence is going away. They're on their deathbed. Sister Sue Straza, she's right there. She needs something real or she's going to die insecure. But it's not a hybrid insecurity. It's an authentic desperation and weakness. And to that person, the Lord rubs their hand and says, don't worry. In, my weak, in your weakness, my power is made perfect. While you're weak, I can be strong. Let's do this together. Amen. But for the person who thinks that, okay, I need this and I need that, and I'm worried about this and I'm fearful about that, but I still got 90% or maybe even 20 or 30, 50% of my life intact. They're the double-minded man, unstable in all their ways, and they'll receive nothing from the Lord. They're like blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops what? Nothing, nothing. I'm sorry if I interrupted. <laughs> Go on, I'm fine. <laughs> Instead of, please help me. So that's where insecurity becomes dangerous. It keeps you off your foot. It keeps you off your balance. But it isn't enough to make you really break and humble yourself before the Lord. Amen. Insecurity is a feeling that we have when we're still invested in the flesh. And yet the flesh, intuitively, we know is going to fail us. So we're living under this constant threat of surprise. Where is it going to come from? And the security God wants is for us to see through the flesh, renounce the flesh, Stop protecting the flesh, acknowledge the weakness of the flesh, and put all our trust in him. To really trust him, to really put our faith in him. And in this sense, you cannot separate faith from humility. What is humility? I would say that the shortest version, shortest definition of humility I could give is Humility is losing faith in everything but God. Humility is not humiliation as such. Humility is not despair. Humility is saying, I only have one place where I'm putting my, the money of my trust. And that's in 
God and the love that I know is coming from him. And what does, what does that kind of trust in love result in? When you trust, you trust somebody because you believe they love you and you believe they can help you. And when you trust God and you trust his love, what does that result in? What does love do to insecurity when you start to trust it? Love is an evictor. It evicts insecurity. Get out. Your lease is up, says love to insecurity. Perfect love, it doesn't diminish fear. It doesn't mitigate fear. It doesn't help you cope with fear. It casts fear out. <laughs> Amen. It throws it out of the house. Love is an evictor. Trust opens the door to love. And when love takes up residency, there's no room left for insecurity and fear. We know the love God has for us, John says. And yet sometimes we lose that knowledge, don't we? We lose that conviction. We lose that vulnerability to the one who died to prove his love for us. Before Jesus came, the Old Testament believers, they didn't understand God as a God of love. They feared him. They honored him. They adored him and his holiness, but they didn't fully understand him. But when God said, look, you think I'm so far off. You think I'm so unapproachable. You think I don't know your weaknesses. You think I don't understand your failures and your temptations. So I am going to come inside of one of you and I'm gonna live your life. I'm gonna know all your pains. I'm gonna know all your hardships. And through my son, through my, my, this man that I'm going to live inside of, through my son, my son is going to be a conduit for me to experience everything that you say are the reasons why you can't be made like me. I'm going to get inside it. I'm going to understand it. And I'm going to show you by an example how you can be different, how you can change. His greatest act of love was empathy. What is empathy except understanding somebody else? And why do I say it was empathy? Because what's more empathetic than actually becoming the person you're identifying with? Becoming the people you're wanting to identify with. Incarnation was empathy. And empathy was to prove to us that we could trust God. Now we didn't have an opening to God because we didn't understand him. But when God came in the man Jesus Christ, suddenly we understood him. Everything he said, everything he did, it was saying, oh, I didn't realize. I didn't know God loved us like that. I didn't know he was so approachable. I didn't know he was so gracious 
so slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. I didn't know his mercies were new every morning. I didn't know that even if we put him on a cross and nailed him naked there in front of all the city, that there from the cross, he would be begging God to forgive us. I didn't understand. So the writer of Hebrews tells a Jewish church of Christians in his day, he says that through Jesus, God has opened a new and living way that we may draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and full assurance of hope because our hearts, our consciences have been washed clean from the old suspicions we had of God. Beginning all the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden, what did, what did the devil do to Adam and Eve? He clouded the simplicity of their trust. He put the hermeneutic of suspicion in the air and said, I, I think I know why God said that. God knows that when you eat of the tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil for yourself. And he doesn't want the competition. That's why he limited your access. Oh, you think, Adam? Yeah, I'm afraid so, Eve. You know, I, I just feel like he was holding something from us. So there's this suspicion, this fear. And because of the fear, we can't find deliverance. We're bound in sin, but we can't get into the presence where there is deliverance because of the suspicion and the fear. And Jesus says, I want to take that fear away from you. The devil's strongest weapon, Jesus said, is fear, the fear of death. I want to disarm that fear of death. I want to triumph over it at the cross. So he changed the way we looked at God. Have you ever wondered why when, when Paul met some believers at Ephesus in, Acts, in uh, yeah, Acts 19, when he was passing through the upper region and he met some believers from Ephesus, what did he say to them? He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed. What did they say to him? They said, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And why did he immediately jump to baptism? He said, what? How then were you baptized? What I want to ask you is, why was it an automatic conclusion in Paul's mind that if they had been baptized right, well, certainly they would have received the Holy Ghost. What did that reveal about his attitude toward baptism and the Holy Spirit? I don't think that necessarily your average Baptist would say that. I don't think that our first question off of our tongue would have been, well, then how were you baptized? My goodness. Huh. Why do you think he said that? Because... Amen. And what does Paul himself say about baptism? He says, as many of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his. If you saw what God did for you on the cross, 
through his death and you were immersed into that death, then you know how available his Holy Spirit is to you. Why on earth haven't you been filled? Do you understand? If you understand, if you comprehend it in your baptism, just what Jesus was doing in tearing down the dividing wall, in paying the debt, and if you were immersed into that death in your baptism, then there should be no barrier between you and this God who is spirit. He should already be inside you for goodness sake. Do you follow? He saw baptism as the moment where the believer bridged the gap, where they got inside of Christ. And we know that the very word Christ, Mashiach, Messiah means anointed one. So if, if there's nothing keeping you from the nearness of God, why haven't you received the Spirit? In our, in our Gentile world, we don't understand that. But in that world that he lived in where these were Jewish believers who had some level of faith, they were proselytes in, in all likelihood. They may have been uh, Jewish by birth, but they were believers, Jewish believers, according to the baptism of John. They believed even in Jesus. They accepted him as much as John did. But he was, in their day, it was like God would have been so distant, so scary, so far out there, that nobody would have believed that they could be filled with his Holy Spirit. But if they saw what he did at the cross, if they saw what his sacrifice really was, well, then who wouldn't be filled with his spirit? Why on earth wouldn't you be filled? So he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? I don't know what it made him ask that. I think he wasn't feeling it like he wanted to. He went to church with them and he didn't really feel it. Maybe he saw some needs in their life and he didn't really see it. So he wanted to know, do you guys have the access to the power that God incarnated himself in Jesus to bring? Or are you still living separated from him? There's a whole lot more security that you can have is what he was trying to say. The problem is, is what I'm saying about this hybrid version. We want to make provision for the new man but we want to make provision for the flesh too, don't we? We want to keep both alive because our flesh isn't totally bad. It's got some flaws and we need to fix it up. We need to put a new paint job on it, add a little caulk, but we don't need to die. We don't need to bury that old man in, in baptism after we've died to him in repentance. We don't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're still trying to rehabilitate this guy because he's smart. Or she's smart. She's beautiful. She's clever. He's strong. He's gifted. We got to keep, we got to rehabilitate this guy. So I want to make provision for the spirit. I'm going to go to church on Sunday and Wednesday and Friday and I'll try to see if maybe we can get this spirit thing going. And if it doesn't happen, well, that'll be, dis that'll be cause for a kind of a cane pout, but We'll survive because we've made allowance for the flesh, too. We're still 50-50 invested here. If one fails, the other one's always there, right? So we've made a little provision for the flesh, too. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't that what Paul said? 
on a long, if you're going on a long journey, what do you take with you? You take provisions, right? What are those provisions for? It's to keep you alive away from home. The Lord said, I want you to leave Babylon. He said, okay, I better bring some provisions for the flesh to keep it alive away from its home. And I'll go back whenever I can and stock up. <laughs> Bring some provisions for the flesh. Isn't that what Paul said? Please remember to bring provision for the flesh because it might get hungry on its long sojourn with Jesus. Did I get that pretty much right? I've been messing up with my Bible study recently. What did he say? He said, put on the Lord Jesus. You're going to have insecurity in the flesh or you're going to put on the Lord Jesus. You're going to lose your old man because you, your life is hid with Christ in God. Or you're going to stay insecure. He says, put on the Lord Jesus and bring no provision for the flesh. Let's look at this scripture in Ephesians. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking. What did he say in Romans 8.20? He says that, that God subjected the creation to what? Futility. And what is the context that he's speaking of? He says, do not be carnally minded. To be carnally minded is death. So the futility of our thinking is death. <laughs> and so speaking of the Gentiles, he says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become past feeling, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you do not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. See, if you're still dragging along the old self, that old self, every step it gets away from Babylon, the more nervous it gets. It's like uh, I told you once that when we were having to go to the hospital every day in Temple, I became conscious of the gas bill. And Brother Abraham was out of town and he has this leaf, uh, Nissan leaf. And it's electric, doesn't have any gas in it. And we had had to go to a funeral that morning. We had to go to the hospital in Temple that afternoon. And I looked at the gauge and it said 69 miles. And I thought, well, I usually get a little bit more out of it. And Temple, wherever we were having to go to, was, was only 69 miles. So we headed off. And uh, we figured it would put the car to its test. Well, the bad thing about an electric car is you can't bring any provision for it. <laughs> Does that make sense? And the further you get away from its provision, the more nervous you get. I, I don't want to tell you the whole story now, but... The provision ended up being me. <laughs> You've heard of horsepower? Well, this was manpower. <laughs> the further away you get from the source of your sustenance, the more nervous you get. 
Is that resonating for anybody? So people get kind of antsy in the flesh. They get insecure the closer they get to their promised land, the closer they get to God's provision. But God's not providing for your flesh. He doesn't have this little niche where it can survive. He doesn't have this little formula where you can really die to it and people can love it at the same time. They want to love the new you. They want to love the you that you can take no credit for. So I'm going to go on and read here. He says, <clears throat> put on the new self. Put off the old self. Stop doing it. Stop dragging it along. It's your source of insecurity. In reference to your former life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Does it say that your old self once upon a time, a long time ago, got some corruption, but we've used a lot of sandpaper and polish and there ain't no corruption left? Is that what it says? Or speaking to Christians, does he say that your old self is, present tense, being corrupted? Brother Matthew reminded me of this scripture Friday. It's being corrupted. Do you get that? The old you is still being corrupted. Because that's all it can do. From birth until eternity, it's being corrupted. So he says, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's very similar to what he said in Romans, isn't it? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which, oh God, is being made or created, oh God, in the likeness of God. Your new self is in process. Your old self is in process. Give up the process of death and pick up the process of regeneration. Let's be changed. It is being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Your new self isn't finished, but what you lack in the completion of your new self, you more than make up for in the connection to the God who's making that new self. Amen? Hold to God's unchanging hand. It's being made, being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He's clearly trying to tie this new self to a corporate body. He's saying, yes, this process is in motion, but get some help because that truth that your neighbor's going to speak to you, it's going to help create this new self in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, speak truth. <laughs> Every time you hear the word of God and it convicts you, your new self is built up. And he's a little bigger at the end of the meeting. Not in pride, but it's being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth.
Every time you come into proximity to truth, a little more of the new man gets built. Isn't that what Paul said? He said, the grace that has been given to me, not for tearing you down, but for building you up. Oikodomia, to build the house, to build the new man. Thank you, Jesus. Here's the parallel in Colossians. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self. That's the mechanism of the old self, lies. Covering up the weakness. You hate yourself for the weakness you conceal, the songwriter says. Amen? So that's the mechanism of the old self, lies. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self who is being renewed. Well, if he's the new self, why does he need to be renewed? New self gets renewed. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You don't have your old habits. You've received the Holy Spirit. You got a new self. But you're still trotting through this dusty, dirty world. You're still falling. And sometimes you take the brand new self out and get him in a wreck. And so you got to keep the renewal of the new man going. The parallel he says he's being created, this one he says he's being renewed. So it's a renewal and a creation happening at the same time. Isn't that what we're doing this week? God renew us. Renew the new man. Which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who is creating him or your Bible says, who created him, but it can be present, who is creating him. If you can just get your relationship, your knowledge with God renewed, you're going, the creation process is going to be expedited. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So, is the new man insecure? No. The new man is not insecure. The old man needs to be more than insecure. He needs to be dead. <laughs> Amen? And the further he gets from his sources, the more we're going to want to pack a provision for him. But he said, don't pack any provision for the flesh. But just put on the new man all the more. Just give up on him. Let him die. And put on the new man. Because he's being renewed in the, to be made in the likeness of God. So I want to give up the insecurity. But I can't. Because the insecurity is rooted in a man I'm still dragging with me. But if I'll give up the old man, the insecurity will be gone. If I'll trust God and receive of his love... Who's going to get evicted? The old man. That old man who's getting more nervous in every meeting. Oh, God, is there any room for me? I mean, I have some good opinions, and it almost sounds like there's no room for them. I mean, do they, are they going to have a space for my great gifts? Is anybody going to really like me? No, no, no. We actually uh, have boycotted you and all your kind, and we've created a space where only... The renewing new guys are welcomed. 
Amen. <laughs> Stop trying to make a provision for the flesh. Because when that provision starts running out, you start getting antsy and insecure. But if you'd shift your investment wholly to the new man, you'd start feeling renewed in the spirit of your mind. So if God is dealing with you and helping you, he's not wanting you to try to survive his dealing as the old man. He's wanting you to remember that you committed that guy to the grave where he has no rights, where he has no comment, where he has no aspirations, where he has no power, where you have taken up your cross and denied yourself, where he's in the grave. And then you say, okay, God, so your dealing with me is, is a reminder to put my old man, to leave my old man at home behind the sealed tomb of my commitment and bring no provision for his little surviving germs that still cling to me. Amen. I want to put on the new man. And what does he say in Romans 8.1? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who have a much rehabilitated and improved flesh. Is that what he says? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who have learned how to keep their flesh well hidden. Is that what he said? Condemnation follows the man who is condemned. And that man is condemned. Whether you live in him or let him live in you or whether you put him where he belongs, he's condemned. He's condemned. That's what they're going to do tomorrow in the baptism. They're going to call the condemnation of the cross, which is the taste of hell that he experienced so that we don't have to know it for eternity. They're going to call that hellish condemnation down upon the old man. Thank you, Jesus. So there is no condemnation for those who are in the new man, who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Oh, God, help me put him under. Amen. You've got no provision, flesh. There's no provision for you. Not in this circumstance, not in that relationship, not in this meeting, not in this crisis. You've got no provision, flesh. You're here to starve but I am striving to renew my mind. I am making an acceptable sacrifice, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. I want the presence of God to renew the spirit of my mind so that this creation process which he began may be completed. Amen. And what was new might be renewed whenever it gets broken. Amen. Amen.